So once again, Matthew 7, page 812. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I find that driving is becoming more and more complicated these days. On any given stretch of road, there are more and more warning signs, especially coming into London. Lane closed, flood ahead, uh, signs telling you how fast you're allowed to drive, average speed, check zone ahead, um, beware, police round the corner, things of that nature. ULEZ approaching ultra low emission zone, um, tiredness kills, take a break, and so on and so forth. But you see the verses uh, Brother Rob just read to us from 13 through to uh, 27. Uh, these verses are taken from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he sets out to his followers the standard for true discipleship. And at this stage, is really concluding his message. And he concludes it with a set of warning signs. Reminding us that uh, it's not just a matter of holding on to the steering wheel and hoping for the best. But that we need to concentrate, we need to take note of danger and that we can't presume on anything. We're to remain alert and vigilant. We're to keep our wits about us. And so these warnings come in a quick succession like road signs on a motorway. Make sure you get through the gates. It's not very wide. Verse 13 and 14. Verse 15 to 20. Watch out for people who will lead you off the road. Verse 21 to 23. Don't think that because you've been tagging along with others that you'll get there in the end. So these are... These are sharp and worrying signs which we need to take seriously. And our focus this morning will be um, on verses uh, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name. And do many mighty works in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So this is a... It's a profoundly searching and disturbing passage. And the last thing I want to do is, you know, sow seeds of doubt in the minds of those, those that love uh, Jesus. But it's incredibly important that we, uh, we pay careful attention to what the Lord is saying here. And here's why. The problem... The problem is about people who think they are Christians, but are not. 
I'm sure there are areas in your life where, where you can think of one thing about yourself and it not necessarily be true. Say so you may think you're a wonderful singer, but that doesn't correspond with reality. Or you may think you're wonderful at this particular job and you, it turns out you're very bad at it, actually. Or they're, they're one of these tasks to do at the church and, and you're one of the very first to volunteer and, and you always trumpet how good you are at that particular task. But uh, it, turned out, it turns out you're not quite as good. But when it comes to an issue like this, where Jesus is talking to us directly, the stakes are so much higher because he's not talking to us about something trivial. He's talking to us about eternity. He's talking, to, he's talking about your soul. He's talking about your walk with God. So there couldn't be a, a more important thing than for you to take a good look at yourself. For you to do some necessary self-examination. In light of what Jesus is saying. And understand whether or not you're engaging is what is clearly, as described here, self-deception. You see how Jesus describes the basis of their appeal to him. Many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did this and we did that and the other. So these people think one thing about themselves. And Jesus says it's not true of them. It doesn't correspond with reality. You see, self-deception by its very nature means you don't realize that it's not true of you. And so Jesus wants us to register this warning with real seriousness and care. So why are they self-deceived? One, it's because they think words are enough. Words are enough to merit acceptance with Christ. It says in verse 21, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord. And it's describing there that one can make a confession of faith. And for that confession not to be enough, let alone genuine. It doesn't necessarily prove anything about the person. When Paul says in Romans 10 and 9, Romans 10, 10, uh, when he says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. He doesn't mean that a profession of faith is a prerequisite for salvation. But that such a confession is outward evidence of an inward faith but these people think that confessing Jesus as Lord is enough but Jesus says no it doesn't work like that if you uh, I wonder if you've been paying attention to uh, the recent head-to-head -head debates between um, the Tory candidates for Prime Minister 
you'll notice that as usual uh, with this type of thing, lots of promises are being made, lots of uh, good points are being, you know, put forward uh, by each candidate, each candidate. Uh, with, with a view to gain favour with the voting MPs, of course. On this occasion, it won't be the electorate voting, electorate voting as you know. Um, but yeah, they, they, they aim to obtain the favour of the voting MPs and also beat Labour at the next general election. However, the general mood of the conservative electorate is that of scepticism. Reasonable scepticism, obviously, because there's been a lot of change in the Tories over the last couple of decades. So the electorate are wondering, will, will, will the candidate that wins the candidate that takes the premiership, will they deliver on their promises? Will they change direction once again and govern as true conservatives with their uh, guiding principles of uh, the right to life, preservation and promotion of the family unit, promotion of um, individual enterprise, uh, freedom of worship, freedom of expression and so on? Will they lead as true conservatives? Or is it just words? But friends, it's not just a political issue, you see. I think it's, it's, it's a, a human issue. It's the human condition playing here. Isn't it? Because we like to say one thing and often it doesn't correspond with the reality that's in our hearts. Lord... Lord, that speaks of sincerity there appeal, you see. But Jesus says, I never knew you. Why are they self-deceived, number two? It's because they think results are enough. Enough to merit acceptance with Christ. See how they appeal to their works. How they appeal to what they've done. Did we not prophesy? Did we not exorcise, that is to cast out demons in Jesus' name? Did we not do great works? I mean, if you're to meet such a person, you would be forgiven to automatically assume that... Uh, they're the most extraordinary Christian you've ever and probably will ever come across. Their prophetic gift is off the chart. They pray for the sick and they're healed. They cast out demons and people are transformed. Surely it would be, it would be safe to conclude that uh, this person truly loves the Lord. But Jesus says, not quite, not so fast. In my kingdom, things don't necessarily work that way. And we'll see from the Bible that one of the reasons is that God uses agents to do his bidding. He uses agents to do his will. Um, 
when, even when they're not necessarily his people. For example, we read in Isaiah that Cyrus, the king of Persia, was moved by God to help Israel return to the promised land and to rebuild. There's a Shrek episode in the book of Numbers. A donkey speaks prophetically. Balaam's ass, it's commonly known as. Do we have a record confirming that Cyrus was saved? Belonged to the family of God? Not. Was the donkey saved? Obviously not. It's just that God uses agents for his purposes. Case in point, that just because God does something through a person, doesn't mean that that person belongs to God's family. It's, it's, it's like Goldilocks. She tries out three bowls of porridge. She uh, tries out three chairs and three beds before finding one that fits her perfectly. Just because she gained access to the home of the three bears, which is to say she had the power, it doesn't mean that she had any rightful ownership of the bears' items. Nor does it mean that she belonged to the bear family. So Jesus is saying that just because you call on my name, or just because you can prophesy or cast out demons or do mighty works, it doesn't mean or it doesn't qualify you to have a right relationship with me. So he's saying that there'll be there'll be some surprises you see on that day. Or to say is on that day. On that day many will say. And so as though he's showing us that there will be surprises on that day, which is shorthand for the day of judgment. There will be peace, people missing who we thought would be there. And there will be people there who we never thought would be. So I want us to wrestle with this. What does Jesus expect of us? How do we view this passage in light of what he's saying? How do we know that we know that we know him and that we are known by him? Well, the answer is in the last verse, verse 23. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And these three things, I believe, correspond to the things he's looking for in those who truly belong to him. First, that you know him and are known by him. Second, 
that you treasure and value him. That you treasure and value his presence. And third, that you delight to do his father's will. So first of all, Jesus wants you to know him and to be known by him. Well, what does, what does he mean by that? I think it's easier if we, st- if we start with uh, what it doesn't mean. It does, this, this, this knowledge here is not an intellectual knowledge. It's not an intellectual sense to a fact. It goes beyond acquaintance and recognition. It's a deep relational knowledge. For example, he says of Israel in Amos 3.2, that you only have I known of all the families of the earth. You see, that that word no is used to describe intimacy in two ways in the Bible. Sexual intimacy, but even more than that, an intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The New Testament describes knowing God as entering into a personal relationship with the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. When we admit our sin and turn from it, and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our hearts and radically changes the way we view the world, the way we view ourselves, and the way we view God. And that we are given assurance for our salvation when the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed the sons and daughters of God. And friends, unless you can genuinely say you identify with that, you identify with this experience, you remain an enemy of God no matter how much you've experienced or known about him. (coughs) So secondly, Jesus wants you to treasure his presence. He wants you to treasure that to treasure and value himself. I never knew you. Depart from me, he says. It's a striking statement, isn't it? I mean, think about it. The person is addressing, never valued the person and the presence of God in the first place. What did they value instead? Prophecy, casting out demons, and great works. This kind of person asks the the pragmatic question, does it work? Is, Is there power? It's about the pragmatic and never about the personal. This person never valued God in the first place. It's not that prophesying or exorcising, casting out demons, or even performing great works. It's it's, it's not that these are evil deeds in and of themselves. 
No. It's just that these people's hearts are in the wrong place. And we're prone to that too. Because our hearts do wonder. They are prone to wonder. So the lesson for us here is that everything in connection to the Christian life, every gift, every grace, has the potential to be dangerous. What do I mean? The devil is clever and subtle enough He's clever and subtle enough to take hold of the good things given to us by God and so influence us to uh, turn those very things into instruments of our own self-deception. You see, it's very easy to denounce many wrong things. It's easy to point out the bad, to point out evil, to condemn it, and yet not love God. It's very easy to make church attendance your main interest, and yet not submit to the God whose word is preached to you Sunday after Sunday. It's very easy to love theology or church history, and even preaching the word of God, and yet neglect your devotion to the God of the world. It's very easy to pray and fast and yet neglect your walk with God. You see, all these things are good. But if they're not pushing and directing us towards a deeper knowledge of God, towards a, a deeper fellowship with Him, then, friends, we have every reason to believe that uh, we're ignoring the warning signs on the road. We are after the gifts and not the giver. So, thirdly, Jesus wants you to obey his Father. He started off with, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he concludes with, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Lawlessness is a general term for, um, for behavior. <coughs> Continuous behavior that displeases God rather than breaking a set of rules. Now, it may appear on the surface that he's, he's uh, making reference to moral perfection, but that's not the case. Jesus understands. He's perfectly aware that we are imperfect people. You see, we need to remind ourselves that this is the Sermon on the Mount and it's at the latter stage. Going back to the former, going back to the beginning in chapter 5, he describes Christianity as for people who recognize their abject failures. 
people who recognize their inability to please God, you know. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that ought to bring a warm glow to our hearts. Christianity is for those who recognize that they are sick. That they are sick and they need the healing power of Christ to mend them in the deepest part. To heal them in their innermost being. But that said, he, he doesn't teach that you can do as you please and disregard the will of God either. What he's saying is that there's no other way of loving God than by obeying his commandments. In other words, obedience to God is not in opposition to the grace of God. They go hand in hand. The former issues out of the latter. That is, obedience issues out of grace. And by the way, he gives grace to save us. And he gives grace to fuel our obedience. The Apostle John says that we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And so I'll close with this contrast. False disciples look inside of themselves. It's a selfish look. It's a selfish look that appeals to, to what they have done. In order to qualify them into God's kingdom. But Jesus is calling us to look outside of ourselves and to rely and trust solely in him as the sin-bearing sacrifice who died in our place, who bore our sin and our shame, who credited his righteousness to our account and gave us a right standing with God and we are now accepted of God. We are now children of his family. We are now citizens of his kingdom. Notice the language he uses here. He presents and he describes himself as a judge. And he says that he will on that day, on judgment day, exercise his prerogative. A prerogative that only he can exercise as the righteous judge, the omnipotent judge. And he will exercise this prerogative of condemning people to hell, to eternal damnation. And friends, we need to remind ourselves that we were once without hope and without God. That we were children of wrath. But God saved us. We are no longer children of wrath. 
We're no longer enemies of God, but we are friends. Think of that language in Genesis that he, he, uh, he, he talks of uh, describing Abraham and his relationship with God, that Abraham was a friend of God and he walked with God. Colossians describes a transportation, an exit from darkness to light. We are not those who glory, who celebrate the works of darkness, but we are those who delight in the works of light. We are those who delight in obeying God as our natural response, a response of gratitude for the salvation He's procured, is obtained for us. So, what about your relationship to Him? How is it? Spiritual health check is always a positive thing, isn't it? How is it? We just sang a while ago from uh, those words in Philippians 3.10. Echoing the Apostle Paul. And Paul had no other care but to know him and to be known by him and to be like him. What's your top priority in life? Because you see, in the grand scheme of things, let's remember that we're all going to die. It's healthy to keep that kind of perspective. It's only a matter of time that we're all going to die. It's appointed unto men to die once and then the judgment. So in the grand scheme of things, it, it all begins with, for the, for the Christian, it all begins with knowing God and being known by Him. And it all ends with knowing God and being known by Him. So do you know Him? <clears throat> Maybe you're here and you fit the description of some of those things that we think we do in order to please God, in order to be accepted by God. The things we mentioned about church attendance, prayer and fasting, all those good things. Those things, friends should only lead us to, as I said before, a deeper love and a greater knowledge of our Lord. So may the Lord help us to make knowing Him and being known by Him our top priority.
in our daily lives.